This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Smith with Automotive News. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, November 2nd. Imagine a massive driving range covered in millions of golf balls. Now imagine that those golf balls actually grew on the driving range, and that each one of them contained some vital metals needed to make lithium-ion batteries. Now take that driving range and submerge it more than 10,000 feet underwater. What would you have? Well, you'd have the clarion Clipperton Zone, a region in the Pacific Ocean spanning 3,100 miles, ranging in abysmal depths of 12,000 to 18,000 feet. Jared Barron, CEO of the Metals Company, and his team are working on collecting those golf balls, scientifically referred to as polymetallic nodules, off the ocean floor and processing the materials on land as more environmentally friendly and a more sustainable approach to building EV batteries. He says there's enough material in the zone to power 1 billion EVs, and he says collecting it from the seabed at those depths has tremendous benefit on the environment. For example, nothing grows at the depths of which the nodules are found, meaning little to no impact on wildlife, something altogether different than ripping up trees and displacing wildlife when mining on land. And because how the region is governed and managed, he also says there are supply chain benefits, something also important as companies navigate geopolitical tensions as they try to build EV supply chains that are resilient enough to weather shifts in the geopolitical ecosystem. The company is getting attention from investors and even went public via SPAC in September. The company is also working with some very small island nations in the Pacific as they continue to explore and prepare to collect nodules off the ocean floor. What created the Clarion Clipperton Zone? And what's the science behind harvesting millions of polymetallic nodules? Where is the company in its mission to launch its ocean-going vessels and establish its processing centers? And why are partnerships with countries like the Kingdom of Tonga so important? Here's my discussion with the Metals Company CEO, Jared Barron, shortly before he departs for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference this week in Scotland. Jared, thanks so much for joining me today on the Daily Drive podcast. How are you? I'm well, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for taking a few minutes. I am very excited about our conversation today. We've been talking a lot about EVs on the show lately, and I think today's discussion is going to be very fascinating for our listeners. Why don't we start with, can you tell us a little bit about the metals company and its mission? Yeah, so the metals company is all about finding a new and better supply of battery metals. And so... We have a large deposit of these metals that for, are in the form of polymetallic nodules. And think of them as potato-sized uh, lumps of battery materials that literally lie on the ocean floor about a 1,000 miles off the coast of Mexico. And they just happen to have all of the metals we're going to need as we transition away from from fossil fuels. And, you know, as the world is waking up to the fact that the green transition is very, very metals intensive. And so the question is, where can we supply and find these battery metals with the lightest planetary 
touch from both an environmental perspective and a societal perspective. So that's what we're all about. So this zone that you're describing in the Pacific Ocean, this is the Clarion-Clipperton zone, as I understand it. Can you describe a little bit about what it is, where it is, who governs it, and perhaps the approach to obtaining those metals? Are they on the ocean floor? Do you have to mine the ocean floor? Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's fascinating. They were discovered way back in the 1870s. But in an expedition that was funded by the Royal Society here in London. And scientists wanted to know what was on the bottom of the ocean floor. And no one knew how deep the ocean was back then, whether it was, you know, 100 meters deep or 100 miles deep. And so they set sail for four years and found these polymetallic nodules in most of the oceans have them. But there's only one little patch where they have very high grades of nickel, and copper. And that area is known as the clarion clipperton zone. And, and the reason why they have high grades of nickel and copper there is because of how they form. They precipitate the metals that are in the seawater or in the sediment upon which they sit. So they literally grow like a pearl grows. Now, if you look to the right, you've got the Andes and the Rockies. And of course, you know, they were covered in nickel and copper and through erosion and volcanogenic activity, all the metals ended up in the Pacific Ocean. And so that's why these nodules are so attractive, whereas nodules in other oceans are not worth recovering. So, so what happened is in the 1970s, the world started to collect these nodules. And there were BP and Shell and Lockheed Martin and Sumitomo from Japan and Mitsubishi. They all started to build the technology and they were very successful and they wanted to move into commercial production. But of course, back 50 years ago, the world had not agreed who owns the oceans. And so Henry Kissinger wrote a letter to all of the ambassadors at the United Nations and said, hey, we'd like to claim this part of the Pacific Ocean. And, and of course, all the ambassadors said, well, that doesn't sound too equitable. No, you can't do that. And it wasn't until 1982 when UNCLOS, which stands for the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, came into being. And so in 1994, the International Seabed Authority was established, and they have the responsibility of governing these international waters. And so they are the organization who have granted us exploration licenses. And it works the same way as it does on land. You get 15 years to explore, and you then have the right to apply apply to extract over that same defined area. So that's a bit of background. So fascinating. So wildly fascinating. So if I'm understanding this, these nodules, they grow on the ocean floor. You don't have to dig into the ocean floor, mine into the ocean floor to get them. You're certainly I'm simplifying this, but you're picking them, you're harvesting them from the, from the ocean floor. Is that correct? And if yeah. that is correct, what are the implications to the environment versus mining um, on dry ground for these metals? No, you've got it in one. Um, they, they literally do grow. And so if you can imagine a golf driving range that is entirely littered with golf balls, that's what it's like on the bottom of this part of the abyssal zone. And so we just have to go and collect them with the lightest um, environmental touch possible. And so and at the moment, we're halfway through our environmental impact study 
to understand what will the impacts be. But it's a, if you would imagine a perfect place to put a large resource like this one, then the abyssal zone of the ocean would be a pretty good place. And, and the reason for that is that it's the most common area on the whole planet. Almost half of the planet is defined as the abyssal zone. And so it's a massive desert under the sea. And you don't see lots of plants or fish swimming around because there's not food down there. Most of the food that uh, finds its way is um, decomposing through the water columns. And so, you know, and I often say to people, if, if we had our time again, surely we would carry out extractive industries in the parts of the planet that had the least life. You know, if you could go to the Atacama Desert and pick up rocks and make batteries from them, then that would be a whole lot better than going to the Amazon or the Solwezi, which is what we're doing now, to rip down the forests, dig up all the soil, look for the metal-bearing ore, and then process it, generate lots of nasty tailings. Land-based mining has a lot of dirty secrets, and, and it's only now we're starting to understand what the full set of impacts of land-based mining are. Now, the problem is, as all of your listeners know, everyone's moving to electric. It's we're, we're not only electric cars, but other forms of transportation. Uh, we're building more windmills to generate wind power and solar panels and batteries for home storage. And, and they all require metals. And so the International Energy Agency predicts that metal extraction will have to increase by up to 600% per annum. And so that's a big problem. And so, you know, last year the mining industry generated about 190 billion tons of waste. And to put that in context, municipal waste globally was about 2 billion tons. So 2 billion for municipal, 190 billion tons of waste for land-based mining. And that means if we have to increase that by up to 600% per annum, we're going to be going into the parts of the planet that are the most biodiverse, that are our carbon sinks, that are going to dislocate local communities, put more lives at risk, put freshwater ecosystems at risk, and so on. So we've got to rethink this problem, Steve. We've got to rethink, we accept the fact we'll need the metals. Where's the best place to be getting them from? So yeah, it's an exciting time to be, you know, I guess, putting forward this proposition and, and this opportunity right at the time when the world has this desperate need for them. Yeah, you're touching on something here that I often think about, and that is I sometimes question if EVs were really going to deliver the promise of reducing the impact on the environment. I mean, in my mind, you're still pulling a resource out of a ground that's natural, that's finite, and either way, it's going to have a negative impact on the environment. So I think what you're describing here, at least in my mind, addresses some of those concerns that when I think about, okay, Electric vehicles, lithium, cobalt, magnesium, they're buried under the ground in many places where, particularly in the United States, we don't have good free trade agreements, right? Or, or, or those trade agreements might be subject to geopolitical risk, which creates supply chain disruptions. From an environment perspective, it, it sometimes I just question whether pulling this stuff out of the ground versus these areas that you're describing is, is really the best strategy. Well, I think um, in America, at least, 
I think the number one issue is security of supply. You know, we've seen car companies have to close down because they can't get semiconductor chips. Battery metals is going to be even worse because 90% of every ton of cobalt that is mined in the world ends up in China. More than 60% of every ton of nickel that is mined ends up in China. And so what America is just waking up to the fact is that China dominates the battery material supply chain. So if you want to go and build all of these gigafactories, they're going to be requiring metals. And the question is, where can we get them? And you know, there are no big discoveries on land that can solve this. And, and you know, in the case of nickel, there are some nickel deposits, but they're in Indonesia. They're in the form of nickel laterites. Now, these are some of the, that means they form through very slow wet leaching. And of course, that means they're covered by rainforests. And so we're having to destroy these carbon sinks that are home to so much life and biodiversity. And then, of course, because of where they sit on the tectonic plates, they, they often tip the waste and the tailings into the ocean around that area. So when you start to understand all of this, it's horrible. Now, now the one good thing about batteries that I think we can all be a little bit encouraged by is that they will be recycled. And so the way I look at this is we have to move towards a circular economy we have to slow down extractive industries, but we can only do that when we inject more metals into the system. And, you know, that's what's going to give us a chance. But the question is, where can we find those metals with the lowest environmental and societal cost? And, you know, the only way you can properly assess that is when you look at a, a comprehensive life cycle analysis that, that accurately compares one set of impacts against another set of impacts. For example, you know, we, we know that we can reduce CO2 emissions by more than 90% if you build a battery cathode using our metals compared to the land-based alternative. We can reduce waste and tailings to zero. We, we only use 10% the volume of water compared to if you build the battery cathode using land-based metals. So all of these impacts really start to add up, and I think consumers will care. Absolutely. I, you, I think the the verdict is in, if you say, in terms of consumers more and more choosing to do business with companies that reflect a lot of the social issues that are personal to them as well. We'll be right back with more. Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer, every time? How often is the opportunity for trade appraisals missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves. From appointment scheduling through final confirmation, all in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit-producing activities. It's a win-win for both CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service link. GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today, visit GoMoto.com. That's G-O-M-O-T-O.com. 
You talk about improvements in the manufacturing process and the sustainability. I'm curious, any sort of implications to improvements, performance, lightweighting to the battery itself, particularly in in use cases surrounding electric vehicles? Well, not from metals because, you know, atoms are atoms are atoms, whether they're metals that have been mined by uh, ripping down a rainforest, worst case scenario, and digging up you know, the nickel deposit or making uh, the metals from our polymetallic nodules. Nickel is nickel. However, the one really important point is supply because, you know, we've seen some of the car companies start to talk about other forms of battery cathodes saying, oh, well, we're going to build our batteries without cobalt. Great. They've been successful at doing that. And so, in the face of a shortage of supply, they're saying, well, maybe we'll build our batteries with less nickel. But what that does is two things. One is it will have an impact on performance because nickel is a very, very effective uh, material to be used in battery cathodes. It has high density. It has quick recharge. It, it also offers extended range. And so there will be some people who don't care about range, you know, if you're just driving your car 20 miles a day around the town. But for many people, range anxiety is a true thing. And so I think by opening up a low-impact supply of these metals, it means that batteries can continue to be efficient. And, you know, we saw Panasonic come out with a – uh, a new battery announcement this week, and you know all indicators are that's going to be very nickel intensive because it offers quality, and it also means that they will have a higher likelihood of being recycled. And so, you know, from that perspective, the increased availability means that we can make better batteries that have a much higher probability of being recycled. Talk about some of the partnerships with some countries in the Pacific, um, because I think in, in the folks that I've spoken with on this topic of a, of um, innovation and um, you know and, and electrification and autonomous, you know, there's an ongoing theme that you can't do this alone. It requires public-private partnerships, and it appears to me the metals company has some of those with the with the countries it's partnering with in the Pacific. Can you describe those partnerships and why they are important? Yeah, thank you for asking because you're right; it's very important. I think that these are we have a we have a partnership with three countries: uh, Nauru, the Kingdom of Tonga, and Kiribati, which are as all Pacific Island nations. Uh, they are all members of the International Seabed Authority. And to be able to claim an area of the international waters, you have to be a member of the International Seabed Authority, i.e. a country, or be sponsored by a member. And so there was a provision in UNCLOS that allowed a developing country to sponsor a private company. And so we have a private-public partnership with those nations, which means that while we hold the license, we have a sponsorship agreement with, say, Nauru, which is the first area to be developed. And, and what that provides for that nation are jobs, are training opportunities, and royalties. And those royalties will be very impactful on their GDP. And, and, and that's important because these developing countries 
have had the least impact on climate change, the least impact. Yet they are in the front line to be most heavily impacted by rising sea levels. And so they're fighting a battle. You know, in some cases, they are less than two meters. Their highest point on the island is less than two meters above sea level. And so the fact that they can benefit from both through jobs, through education and through uh, royalties from a new industry that has the potential to address one of the biggest impacts around of climate change, I think is a really fitting partnership and we 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 treasure our relationships uh with them they are uh, you know very progressive nations and we also pay a very uh, well, we will pay when we're in production a, a heavier royalty to the regulator to the international seabed authority and it was agreed um what will happen to those royalties they will be distributed to the developing nations of the world and so the developing countries get two benefits one is they get the royalty, but even probably more impactful, they will ensure a supply of these important metals. Because, of course, you know, your show is about electric vehicles and electrification, but there are some other demand drivers as well. You know, the industrialization of the developing world is still a massive demand driver. We still have more than 3 billion people on the planet who can't afford a bicycle. And you know, standards of living need to be brought up in those communities. But to do that, to put the infrastructure in place, requires metals. And of course, commodities like metals tend to be cyclical. And of course, like they are now, they're just starting to ramp upwards. And and the people that always lose out are the people in the worst situation. And so by increasing the supply of these important metals, hopefully means that providing that infrastructure to those developing nations will be affordable. And that means it can continue. Such an important topic. I think, again, the proof point has been demonstrated time and time again that manufacturing, the business of making things, you start at the low end of complexity, textiles, et cetera. Over time, that grows in complexity. The manufacturing know-how grows but at the bottom line, what you're creating is, is economic prosperity, right? The pathways to prosperity that comes from the business of making things. There's countries all around the world that have proven the case that that, that matters. Uh, and, and what you're describing, I think, for these countries, I think, is such an important topic. Thank you for, for sharing that. You talk about production. You talk about starting production. Can you share where you are in that cycle and any perhaps conversations you're having with automakers or suppliers? Sure. We, um, well, we, you mentioned before um, that we also have lots of expertise and partners. And so one of those partners is a company called Allseas. Now, Allseas are one of the, the world's largest pipe layers for oil and gas in the deep ocean. They've been doing it for 35 years. And so they became a substantial investor in our company a few years ago. And they are building our first production system. And in fact, uh, earlier this week, we had a team of um, partners in Rotterdam inspecting our first production vessel, uh, which is a former drill ship that they acquired. Um, also inspecting our harvester machine that will operate uh, on the area, collecting the nodules off the seafloor. So that was really cool. People got to walk aboard the vessel and walk around the harvester and just see how advanced it is. Um, and then 
on the onshore processing side, uh, we are halfway through our pilot processing work. Uh, um, it involves two steps, the pyrometallurgical, which is now all complete, and the hydrometallurgical work, which has started some weeks ago and is going very, very well. So, you know, putting all those pieces together means that we will be on track to, to be in production by, we're aiming to be in production by 2024. And having that first production vessel is really important. Uh, it was actually a former drill ship that, you know, if you were to build that today, it would be a billion-dollar asset. Um, we were able to, or well, all seas were able to acquire that for a whole lot less. And so, you know, from that perspective, uh, that capital efficiency is a real favor in getting it started. Now, we also have Maersk as an important shareholder. They've been with us since 2017. And then at the other end, we have Glencore, who are a shareholder, and they also have an offtake for half of the nickel and half of the copper on one of our license areas. Now, they are a very supportive shareholder. They, um, you know, for, I guess they know the commodities market very well, or maybe better than anyone. But we also talk to customers. Uh, I've got nothing to announce on that. We've always said we want to get consumer-facing brands involved. I think it's dawning on those customers right now that you can't push this problem down the line as always used to happen in the auto industry. And, and semiconductor chips have been a, a perfect example. And so, you know, it's, it's a, you know, all of those customers want to see us continue doing what we're doing. They want to see our continued environmental research work, which is coming along very nicely. And, you know, I expect we will have uh, consumer-facing brands, particularly from the EV industry, involved in this project. So. Jared, such a fascinating story, such important work you and your team are doing. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes with me today on the show and sharing these wonderful insights. I appreciate the time. I appreciate it as well, Steve. It's been fun. That's Daily Drive for Tuesday, November 2nd. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash daily drive. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.